Welcome to episode 20 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. In this episode, I'll talk to one of the smartest guys in the cybersecurity world I know, Associate Professor of Cybersecurity at Champlain College, Dwayne Dunstan. Dwayne and I go way back to my first year in the FBI, and he has some compelling points about cybersecurity, education, and creating the next workforce of cyber patriots. But before I get to Dwayne, I want to wish you all a happy new year and thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. As I've said from the beginning, my goal with this podcast was to break down what can be a somewhat technical and difficult subject that is being cybersecurity and cyber threats and things into something that you can use to help you, your family, and your business stay safe from the cyber threats that are out there and that are targeting you and your information all the time. As the number of listeners for this podcast continue to go up, I really appreciate you for taking the time to listen to me and my friends. I hope to continue to bring value to your time as 2021 progresses. I welcome thoughts and comments on the show. So feel free to email me, and I want to thank you. I want to give a thank you to those who have taken the time to do so, and thank you to those who have passed their podcast, this podcast to their friends to listen to. I think I have made it easy to find. It's not all the usual podcast download spots, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast. Uh, I think it's on Stitcher, TuneIn. Uh, it's kind of all over the place. So you can kind of find it. If, if you get podcasts from somewhere, you can probably find it there. So before I get to Dwayne, though, I want to talk about a couple headlines that I that came to my attention this week as I was developing, uh, putting together this particular podcast. And the SolarWinds hack continues to bring forth bad news to us all. This week, there was news that Microsoft had been compromised through this hack as well. And keep in mind, uh, if you're if you're just tuning into this podcast, not sure what SolarWinds is. SolarWinds is a IT management tool and system that over 300,000 companies in the world utilize. Russian hackers, or at least what they're saying, it's Russian hackers. It certainly appears to be a nation state directed uh, intrusion, got into SolarWinds and were able to compromise the update system for SolarWinds. And I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing this very much. If you want great detail into how this particular intrusion occurred, episode 18 of this podcast, I talked to some subject metal experts specifically on SolarWinds. But essentially, by getting to SolarWinds, they were able to then jump across to all of the customers, one of the customers, of course, being Microsoft. And the problem with this particular intrusion into Microsoft was that there's been some news that some of the Microsoft source code has been accessed. This is bad, bad news for anybody who's a Windows user, if it's true as this capability, hacking and getting into the the Microsoft source, source code, will give hackers the ability to find and exploit vulnerabilities in the code that runs Microsoft-related software, be it the Microsoft Windows operating system, be it their, their suite of Office products or whatever. So this will create a whole bunch of bad stuff. Zero Days, which are is malware that antivirus manufacturers haven't don't realize exist and haven't been able to update their antivirus signatures to protect against. So you basically cannot defend against a zero-day intrusion. Now, in order for a zero-day to work, you have to have the software that it's compromising. But, you know, the majority of the world still uses Microsoft as its main operating system. So if I'm a nation-state actor, I have access to Microsoft source code, and I can see where there's vulnerabilities or find vulnerabilities within it because source code is millions and millions of lines of stuff people put together that is never perfect be it Microsoft, be it Windows, be it Linux. They all have vulnerabilities. It just takes someone to find those vulnerabilities and exploit them. And the, when these this malware is created that exploit those vulnerabilities, they call them initially zero days. Once the world knows what they are and can kind of protect against it, they're just malware that's out there. But in addition to zero days and other malwares, it'll be nearly impossible to defend against this initially. So if you're a Windows user, make sure you keep your software updates going. If Microsoft comes out with a patch, you should install it. Now, I give a caveat to this in this particular perspective. If you're a business, ideally you have a team that can isolate the patch and make sure it works correctly and doesn't break anything to start with. Because a lot of times some of these patches, they're rushed out to fix huge security issues, but they break other things in the process. For the normal home user, this just becomes kind of a problematic thing and you have to call Microsoft sometimes or, or try to fix it. And it's not really, it's kind of a pain, but it doesn't debilitate your your ability to to use the product at home for businesses it's a much bigger problem because if certain servers go offline or there's misconfigurations amongst parts of your IT infrastructure it becomes very problematic so ideally again if you're a business you can isolate this test it make sure it works correctly before you install it across your entire infrastructure uh, it's a pain but you know unfortunately 
I fear most small and medium-sized businesses just don't have the capability to do this, and it creates more pain in the future. So, you know, you had to have to, again, look at the threat, look at the vulnerabilities, and assess your risk overall. I can't give you the golden ticket on how to fix this because there, there really isn't one. So you kind of have to evaluate the risk as, as your business owner, as a homeowner, and things like that. So you also need to raise the sirens on your email evaluation. In other words, let your employees know to be on the lookout for suspicious emails that may appear to deal with fixing IT problems, uh, may come out of the blue for nothing and say, hey, click on this link to make sure your version of Microsoft uh, Word works or what have you. Do not open the links or the documents in these emails that come out of the blue even if they appear to come internally to your network, take the time, contact the sender, and verify the document is safe. If you know, if, if Jenny from finance sends you a thing about your payroll statement, maybe take a minute, give Jenny a call on the phone and say, hey, I just got this email. I wasn't expecting it. Um, is it real? So just verify that it's safe before you open it. That's not going to take a lot of time. It's some good due diligence. But I think we're really still at the beginning of determining the extent of all of the solar wind secondary issues that are come out of all of this. And as I mentioned, Joanne and I will talk a little bit about this in, in our interview, but you know, this is not just a Russian issue. I believe truly this is a China issue as well, that China is, has some connection to this. We just don't know what that is yet. But that's more or less my opinion, so take it for what that's worth. The other thing uh, with the Georgia senatorial elections coming this week, and the upcoming inauguration, this, this is not a political point here, so keep that in mind. I'm not here to talk politics. I'm just using politics as the background for this particular issue. But you need to be on the lookout for phishing emails that focus on these events, the inauguration and the, the senatorial elections, and the results really afterwards. Because chances are, when the election occurs on Tuesday, we may not have a complete picture of who won. So bad guys are going are gonna to take that opportunity to send out emails you know, regardless of what side you're on, if you're on the Democratic side, you're on the Republican side, we are in a divided country and the bad guys are going to exploit this division to try to get people to open and interact with emails, Facebook posts, text messages, and so on, because they understand that there are people that take an interest in this kind of stuff and want to read the news or want to have their biases confirmed. So they will post these things online, send you emails, and hope that you click on links within those you open the emails or open the documents within those emails, and that contains potential malware that can compromise your system, give them access to your, your network and maybe or your computer. And maybe they're not looking to get into your computer at home, but if you are working remotely for a clear defense contractor, I want to target you at home if I'm a bad guy so that if I can get into your computer at home. I can then get into the corporate network when you go to log in remotely because you're working at home because of the pandemic and things like that. So there's still going to be pandemic emails and all sorts of, you know, as you watch Watch news items occur. Just be aware, bad guys are going to exploit that news to create phishing attempts to get you to click on things you're not supposed to click on. So let's be clear, 2021 is going to be a busy cyber year. We will hear a lot more about solar winds. We will see a lot more things we don't even expect to see as the year goes forward, but hopefully we'll talk about them in all of these podcasts going forward. So I want to welcome on to the podcast, probably the smartest guy I've ever met, Dwayne Dunstan, currently Associate Professor of Cybersecurity at Champlain College in Vermont, and also the CEO of a company called Erlo, which we'll talk about towards the end of this podcast. Dwayne, thanks for taking the time and coming on. Thank you, and thanks for the intro. <laughs> sure, sure. So we should talk about how, how we came to meet 20 years ago um, in the Charlotte field office of the FBI. And if I remember correctly, you were friends with someone who worked at the office. Kevin. Was What's that? Kevin. Kevin. Yes. What was Kevin's last name? I, I can, I should uh, Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan. Yes. Kevin Sullivan. Yes. Yes. He was the, uh, was, he was our, assist, our, uh, administrative officer, the head guy. Over yes, our, exactly. Yeah. Yes, our personnel yes. folks. Yeah. So it's been, I've heard that name a long time, but anyway, so, uh, in 2000, we had a, the Charlotte division had a nascent cyber squad and the FBI and all their wisdom figured the best way to make cyber agents effective was to give them tons and tons of equipment. So they came down with a couple guys and then built this huge um, cyber lab with every conceivable operating system currently known to man at the time in this facility, and we promptly broke it so that none of them could speak to each other. The network was connected to was was toast. And so Kevin Sullivan said, hey, I know these two guys out at Pfeiffer Community College, and maybe they can help you out. And that's 
And then, Fife, Fife University. Fife sorry. University. Sorry, <laughs> Fife University. Pardon me. Excuse me. Sorry. Uh, and so Dwayne and his friend came out and basically fixed our systems. You remember that that uh, that funky oh, yes. network we had yes. set up? Yeah, you had an SGI computer there. I recall that. <laughs> yeah. What was your so? What you walk in, you see this. What was your opinion of that of all that stuff? Well, it was cool because it was different operating systems that I've never touched before, like HP, OX, and SGI, and all that kind of stuff. I thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. funny because we honestly, I'll be honest, in the the seven or eight years I was there, I don't think we ever really used those for anything other than to play <laughs> on them and practice our Linux, our Linux, uh, our Linux command right. command tools. So, so Dwayne, let's talk a little bit about your background. What got you into cybersecurity? Kind of, you know, give us a kind of a lowdown of how you got to where you are. Yeah, I graduated from Fife University in 97, and uh, I graduated with a, a BA in sociology, and I went to Thailand to teach English for a few months, and I came back, and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, quite honestly. I was suffering from uh, culture shock mm-hmm. <laughs> after being there, and it was only for a few months, though, and then my best friend, um, Tony, who came out to that lab you are talking about. Uh, he was a system admin at my college, <clears throat> and at that time, the DNS server got hacked, and I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> I knew how to put a CD drive in a computer. That was about it. And you know, one of the other guys there, um, Alan, Alan Noah, told me, you know, kind of what happened and explained to me what that was. And I don't know why. Maybe I do. I, I want to be a police officer, but this is not video recorded, but I, you know, I have an eye patch on because I'm blind in one eye. Yeah. <laughs> and so much, so much of my law enforcement <laughs> dreams. And I think it was the mere fact that he figured out and investigated how they broke in and what they did is what I think caught my attention. And at about that time, SANS had just started and they had like, I don't know, it's like four or five courses available for free for people who wanted to learn about cybersecurity. Now, at the time, I was just really learning what Linux was. I, I barely really knew how computers worked. So I kind of jumped in from those SANS courses. And, you know, Tony and the um, system admin there were totally fine with me checking the logs and basically applying what I was learning in those SANS courses to the systems there. And... I think the most exciting thing that happened is, you know, we were getting some scans on our uh, port map on the NFS servers. And I contacted the admin of the system with the IP IP address that it came from. And some didn't respond and others were like, well, what can we do to prevent this from happening on our system? And I was like, whoa, this is, this is cool. (laughs) And now, straight up became obsessed with cybersecurity ever since then. And I, I tried to find as much as I could on the internet at the time. Again, this was 97, so right. <laughs> internet was still relatively new for, you know, general use. And I'm going to guess and, at the time that this DNS server was hacked, the FBI was not much help to you. If I'm not, <laughs> I don't think they even contacted the FBI <laughs> because it's just a low level, okay. <laughs> low level uh-huh. hack, if you will. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I guess Alan figured out they didn't get, get anywhere with that you know, far into the system at all. And uh, yeah, I, I, I tried to learn as much as I could on my own and I just kept monitoring the logs. And that's probably the single most uh, effective skill I learned is how to analyze and review logs. And I went to grad school at Pfeiffer, still did security work, but I was primarily the, the janitor. That was my full-time job at um, Pfeiffer. Where I worked there in the daytime as a janitor, and then at night, I went to school. <laughs> I got a master's in management, and that's where I met Kevin in that program, and, uh, and that's where I met you. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Okay. And uh, and uh, and my experience with security came from setting up these really old three eighty six computers and learning how to set up. Um, we had a rotor runner at the time, and learning how to set up a firewall and how to. Uh, a virtual machines that just come out. Uh, I forgot. I forgot what it was. A box, BOCHS, something like that. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. And you know, one thing I never wanted to get into was hacking into other people's computers. You know, I was just. I have a guilty conscience for one thing, and I didn't want to go to prison <laughs> for hacking a computer. Sure. You know. And I'm like, you know, I just met an FBI agent. I don't want to be <laughs> <laughs> right. 
got to deal with him in a in an interrogation room. He scares me as it is, Darren. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, did I have the goatee by then? Was, that, was the goatee fully going, or what? I don't know if I've grown it back from Quantico yet or not. But <laughs> and um, and then I went to uh, Cape Fear Community College in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I was a Unix technical specialist, but I was also uh, did security work there. And so that's where a bulk of my experience started to come from. And they signed me up for the full SANS GSEC course. And that's, that was my first certification that I received. And I was there for about a year. And then I was hired to work in, in the government. I was a government contractor for STG. And I worked at NOAA in Asheville, North Carolina. And that's when my security career really took off. Right. <laughs> um, really started out as a journalist to kind of become a jack of all trades in cybersecurity because they didn't have a strong cybersecurity program. And when I got there, they gave me a report that the uh, NSA had given to them at one point about, I don't know why they came there to do a security review, but they did. And <clears throat> looked to say, okay, what, what did they find? All right, let's fix these issues. And then I started to, you know, they started to trust me, you know, <laughs> security people, they, think you're there to, you know, read their emails and watch their web traffic. Right. <laughs> and I tell people, you know, people just aren't that interesting. That's what we do all day. <laughs> you know? So um, I really got a chance to really experiment and, and set up new software, um, the latest and greatest intrusion detection systems, which was, you know, snort <laughs> at the time mm -hmm. and really build out the um, a monitoring system so we can see what was going on inside the organization. And, it was because of the NIST documents is where I started to develop a more structured and organized approach to cybersecurity and really started to take on a risk management uh, mindset, which I think probably drove people crazy. Right. Cause I, at the time, uh, cause risk management is big today. You can, you can't, you, you yes. know, you can't throw a dead cat without hitting someone talking about risk management. But at this right? time I'm going to say you were, you were a, uh, you were on the cutting edge of risk management because no one want, no one knew what it was and didn't want to talk about it. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly my point. Is that I would come up with these worst case, not worst case scenarios, but things that could possibly happen. And that, yeah, but how likely is that? I'm like, well, that's my point. That's what <laughs> risk is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yep. <laughs> and luckily, I had really strong support because you know I the one thing I did learn early on was to not speak so general about risk that it didn't seem like there was anything that could be done, but to talk about it in context to how it could impact our organization and our data, our information. That's how I got support with, mm -hmm. with my efforts and got management buy-in on a lot of our, our initiatives. So, uh, you know, we've had, we had some incidents there and I would write reports and report them to the NOAA CERT, the Computer Incident Response Team. And after, I would say, a couple of years of being there, I started teaching as an adjunct at UNC Asheville and I sent a, uh, a raw email, raw, you know, just a, what do you call it? Just an email out of there, right. <laughs> in there to the uh, uh, program director and say, hey, I like to teach a cybersecurity course. And I wrote up a little curriculum outline and it was like, cool. <laughs> and I started teaching um, cybersecurity. But my, the most exciting work I did was the incident responder, incident responder. So I was still working at Asheville full time, doing my job there. But because of the reports I wrote, and I guess the detail I wrote in it and talking to the CERT team, they invited me to Silver Spring, Maryland to uh, train with them for, I think it was like a week or something like that. So they brought me another guy on, and it was just exciting. <laughs> and, you know, just chatting with someone today about this, but this is where my imposter syndrome was at its highest. <laughs> <laughs> where I'm like, wait a minute, that's, there's no way I, I, I can't do this. I don't know all this stuff. <laughs> These folks in here are much smarter than I am. But, you know, that was really put to ease really quickly because the team was just a great to work with. I mean, they were just really cool people. And they gave us some challenges to work through and things like that. And then I started working part-time with them starting in about 2006, I don't know. I don't know when it was. I spent six years with them in general. Right. <laughs> and uh, and that's where probably what I learned the most about cybersecurity because it put everything I knew to the test plus some. 
Mm-hmm. And that plus some was what I didn't know and had to learn and um, really look towards my colleagues for mentors. And what we didn't know, you know, we had to figure things out. But that's when I started to understand why, as a cybersecurity professional, <clears throat> we need to start with understanding the basics, what a computer is, how does it work, hardware, software, system administration, network administration. All these things is what makes someone, I think, a really valuable instant responder. And I, I dealt primarily with Windows-based <laughs> um, exploits and and Java in particular was my bane of my existence at the time. And I took one year, I lost my mind and became a manager. And it, it just didn't work the way I was expecting it to. So I, I stopped working for the government, but I was on, I went back to being a contractor doing instant response. <laughs> and I did that for a few months. You know, you know, this is where things get weird. I did that for a few months in Civil Supreme, Maryland. I went back to Asheville <laughs> <laughs> and worked as a general um, cybersecurity, you know, analyst, uh, security officer. And then I went back to Civil Spring again <laughs> right. as an incident responder. And I just kind of lost interest in working with the government. Things were just moving too slow for what we were working on. And I was just getting frustrated. And this job came about teaching at Champlain College for a year. It was not supposed to be renewed, but I'm like, you know, I think now is the time to make that leap into teaching. And I applied for the job and got it. And, you know, it was kind of a desperate hire. They really needed somebody because yep. <laughs> they, they really wanted to, you know, uh, push that, push a, a cybersecurity curriculum. And luckily they hired me and I was able to demonstrate not just technical um, expertise, but teaching this as well. And I got hired on full time after that year. So, and ever since then, the program has really blossomed. Not because of me. I'm not saying that. It just happened to blossom when I came on board, which was cool because I can joke around and say, "Hey, it blossomed when I came here." You know, you should say that. It probably was because of you. Who are we kidding? It was. You know, any success I had in Charlotte was because of information you gave me. So I got to say, good things happen when people follow you, Dwayne. <laughs> so, and you're also so now you're working on your PhD, correct? Um, my EDD, my doctor. EDD, in okay. Oh, so you'll yeah, be like Jill yeah, Biden. Yeah. You'll be you'll be Dr. Dwayne yes. Dustin. Yes, excellent, yes. excellent. That's to say, don't tell Jeff Epstein. Though. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I said we we're going to go down that road, but I couldn't help it when it's EDD. So you know, but uh, so so. So you've so you've worked with the government, and you've already mentioned, you know, obviously, it's working with the government, it's slow and, and not surprising. So, so I'm guessing that the the last couple of weeks with the Solar Winds incident has brought back probably some nightmares and some very interesting memories. So, a, are you surprised that that happened? B, could it have been prevented? And C, do you think the government's in any better shape now in 2020 than it was in 2006 when you're working with NOAA up in Asheville? All right. Am I surprised that it happened? Hmm. I'm surprised that it happened. You know, when I first heard about it, I was more, can we say anything on this? Anything you want. Like yes. This? Yes. I was like, damn, <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> is what my initial thought was. <laughs> Um, surprised, you know, I feel like I'm, I feel like I feel so jaded, quite honestly, because yeah. no, I wasn't surprised. I right. was, my, I, I remember my heart, like pounding hard in my chest. Cause I'm like, this is significant. Oh, was it <laughs> pounding hard in your chest? Cause you didn't want to thinking, do we have solar winds on our system? <laughs> no. <laughs> that, that, that didn't go through your head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Cause I even thought about that. It's not my area in the, in the, in the college. So mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, I was just like, man, that this this can be pretty. This can be a big deal, quite honestly. And um, I forgot what B was. I'm sorry. Um, it was. Yeah, I forgot too. I, I kind of making these. You, you're the first interview I've had where I really haven't written anything down because we've known each other long okay. enough. I figured we could kind of throw these <laughs> yeah. things off each other. Um, but uh, yeah, so so you've already well, said you're not surprised it happened. But so going back, I mean, is the government in any better shape now than it was when you were doing the cybersecurity stuff for NOAA back in the in the mid 2000s? Or, or is it basically because, like you said, the government is so slow at doing stuff that it's really not surprising that they weren't prepared to to 
in, to face this issue because the scope of government just doesn't react quickly enough to these ever changing this ever changing cyber model. When I was when I was with the government, one thing I did was I created this document that explained how to analyze new software. So essentially, it was um it uses it used process monitor, very low level um, system call monitoring, and I would run an application in a isolated environment to see what what it was doing, and run it for a while, run it for a few days, and just kind of pluck through in the network calls, system calls, see if it was doing anything that it, it shouldn't be doing for this kind of application. And I am, I am, man, it's so, man, it's all of those things. It's, 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 so, it's so, it's, it's huge. I mean, it's such a big deal, right. first of all, mm-hmm. because it's the, the nature of it. I mean, they, they were able to, inject malicious code into the build process. <laughs> yep. Um, and, and when you look at the code, it's not a whole lot of extra code to get a backdoor, you know? Right. Um, and I do not, I, I can't speak, I'm not in the government, but I, I don't think the government is as better, is as better off than we were when I left. Right. Eight years, eight years ago. Yeah. 2012 when I left. Because I know how how slow things move, I know how the mission of the organization has a higher priority than the security of the information that sustains the mission right. of the organization. Um, and just hearing from colleagues <laughs> who work with the government as well. However, there are some efforts that were put into place. This is why I like Ron Ross of NIST, by the way, of moving away from the three-year um, uh, accreditation cycle and moving it more to a, an annual model. And I know there were some efforts as I was leaving by DHS to have these things, what, what were they called? These ticks? I don't know. I think they're called ticks. Okay. That that were these massive uh, firewalls, if you will, that all internet from all government agencies will go through to filter, okay. essentially. Mm-hmm. And I I just didn't see that being of really viable. <laughs> well, right, especially if you look at the way SolarWinds worked. I mean, they were in the supply chain of the companies, so the, the companies had yes. this, this software yes. that called back say, "I need you to update me." So they got yes. in the update system, put their injected yes. their code into the update system, whitelisted mm-hmm. it off of the malware signatures. So so right. like it wouldn't even even if it was known malware, it wouldn't be detected because part of the update was to whitelist everything. Right. In, internally. So I mean it was it was genius, honestly. The way they did. And frankly, we can't really we shouldn't really blame the government that much as far as being un, un incapable of dealing with this because Eighteen thousand organizations of you know of the three hundred thousand SolarWinds customers were hit. So there were private sector companies that that you know have the same problem. You can't blame that on government inefficiency. So it's just it was. But I think this right. is this is going to show. Well, it, here's and here's where the difference is. Is and this is my opinion. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But the private sector is going to look at this intrusion and say, "Ooh, here's the problems with this." Here's what we're going to need to do to fix it. And here's, you know, we're going to throw some extra money at our IT folks to create platforms to, to look for these things or to do better due diligence into the, into the supply chain process. They'll make those changes so that it, they're less likely to be hit again. Not to say they won't be hit again because risk is not eliminatable. But the government will not react that quickly to make those same changes. Yes or no? Do you agree with that? Yeah, you know, um, we'll take a step back. One, one is I, I'm not blaming the government. Right, right. No, um, I'm, I'm not. Hard, I'm not blaming them hard, either. Yeah, any breach is hard to blame anybody. Because mm-hmm. again, being a, uh, working on an incident response team, you see phishing emails, and you look at some of the homework that goes into creating these things, and you're like, wow, that is really good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they didn't just like put in a fake email address that, that could have been easily seen, but the mere fact they have content and documents <laughs> from actual meetings <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, to make it even more believable, you know? So it's hard to really point fingers at people. Um, yes. I, yeah. I think the, 
I think that that problem is going to happen. They're going to throw money at at trying to detect these kind of things. And but we need to change processes for one. Yep. Um, you know, solo wins as an example. As a vendor, you should know there should be filters you can put in place to determine what solo wins shouldn't be accessing any other system on the internet except for the solo wins update service, for example. Right. And for the network that is on, anything else should be a red flag essentially. And that's kind of a, uh, an aspect of security. I don't think is very well um, discussed or covered trusted network paths. Mm-hmm. This, this, this computer, this server, this computer system, or this, let me just say a server, this server, what is its purpose? What sites, what, what, what IP addresses should it be connecting to? I don't think it, things are looked at at that level, but no. this highlights the need for it at that level. This highlights the need for organizations to have a better um, process to say in your proxy, put in these IPs or these domains for updates, for example. Anything else should be blocked and should be investigated. I think it could have been detected at that level, I think. Well, you know, the problem is companies, so companies, especially private companies, work on a profit margin. Cybersecurity has no profit margin. There is no profit to it. You are spending money to protect your information, but you're not getting a return on that investment. I think that's where the problem always stems from is companies have to, you know, they're, they're reporting to their their shareholders and their board of directors who generally don't aren't dealing with this stuff on a daily basis. And so why are we spending a million dollars for this particular process? It doesn't make us any money. Correct. And that's a, that's a mindset that needs to be shifted mm-hmm. when we teach, when we're teaching people about business, when we, we're educating our new business folks, because um, let's take, uh, well, that's, I guess any hack, yeah. there's always this cost involved with it that we don't think about. And that cost can be astronomical. As I like to point out to people, I don't, I cannot tell you how much it's going to cost to recover from a hack. But I can tell you, if you have 50,000 credit card numbers of 50,000 customers in some states, you got to pay for postage for notifying them. So, Multiply your postage times fifty thousand. That's just for stamps, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great one. And and you know, and I, I've I've made this point before that you can if you if you look at annualized loss expenditure, if you get one hit in ten years, the current cost to recover from a data breach is roughly the average is three point six million dollars. I think. Mm-hmm. All right. So now you can say, okay, look, I'm not, I, I, I have great faith. I'm not going to get hit within the next five years. Can you say that within the next 10 years? So within 10 years, it's going to cost you $4 million to fix this problem. Annualized over that 10 years, that's $400,000. Well, if you had a $25,000 educational process in place to start with, that would make people aware of what these threats are and the risks, you're saving right. money in the long run, but no, no one thinks right. of it that way. Right. And something has to change with fines as well. Some mm-hmm. organizations can withstand the fines yep. and they keep on operating, but they keep having the same issues though. Um, the, yeah, so so the, the cost factor, then there's organizations that have insurance and it becomes a, a lifeline, if you will. Yeah. But one of those clauses in, le- in insurance that they miss is continuous monitoring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and an insurance company, they don't want to just pay out $10 million, for example, they don't want to lose that kind of money. <laughs> right. So they're going to make sure that organization is doing due diligence. Mm-hmm. And if they can demonstrate they're not doing due diligence, well, guess what? We're not going to pay that. <laughs> right, right, right. So we're going to, we're going to, so. we're going to jump off solar winds here in a second. Cause I'm sure people are sick of me talking about solar winds. Cause like the last three podcasts have talked about solar winds, but um, well, here, it, it, here's, it, it, let me, let me, I'm going to make one point, it, one point. Let's see if you but, but go ahead. The thing about solar winds though, is that it brings out so many aspects of things that we're not doing right. Oh, absolutely, you absolutely. <laughs> and here's here's where I blame the guy. I don't blame the government on being victimized by the the issues with solar winds. Where I blame the government is their inability to create sanctions or other capabilities against the countries by which this is occurring. These are not kids in their basement 
creating this information. These are nation state actors. Um, the attribution goes to Russia, but I would argue that China figured out how to do something like this as well, or, or followed in on Russia. I, my, yeah. my, my preference is, and I think you and I talked, I think we talked about this beforehand, was I hope what happened was Russia figured out how to get into solar winds, and then China figured it out by hacking Russia, finding out what they did, and then they came in the back door and did it as well. So Right, yeah. right. And, and, and that's, yeah, that's what we talked about. I'm like, you know, Hitting accounting firms doesn't sound like a Russian hack. <laughs> Correct. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The government stuff sounds like Russia. Yes. Any any commercial company is doesn't sound like that. It sounds more exactly. more more China oriented. But right. We, right. we may be the only ones singing that song. But that's that's right. my belief on that anyway. So so let's move into some more entertaining, some more some more positive topics. Uh, you, so you've for the last eight years you've been in education, and I applaud you for that. I was an educator before joining the bureau. I think you, I'm sure we've talked about that in the past. Oh, yeah. But it's high school, high school education, a lot different than college. Um, although you'll be happy to know that I'm, I'm starting a, I'm teaching, a, I'm supposed to teach a cybersecurity uh, or computer crime class at a community college this coming semester. Cool. So we'll, we'll awesome. see how that works out. But, but uh, I thought you were going to say you're going back to teaching. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, well, I do, I just, I do, I do do some educate, I educate the private sector folks that we deal with. So I do some of that. But anyway, so you, so you've been working, so you're the, uh, Associate Professor of Cybersecurity at Champlain College. Talk a little bit about what you, what that that looks like in the academic realm, as far as what does like in what your college and other colleges, what are they, what are they doing to create the next generation of cybersecurity specialists? Because I, you know, in the next year or two, there's going to be two million vacant jobs in the cybersecurity world. So you guys are training the people at least that are going to fill that role. How is that? How's that working? What are you focused on? Are you trying to push risk as uh, a methodology to go forward? Just kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, first, I think one of my favorite uh, comments from you, which have been many over the years, <laughs> is um, you got to say you want to be an FBI agent because it was safer than... <laughs> So with Champlain College, you know, we really are fortunate because the last eight years I've been here, I think our statistic has been somewhere like 88 to over 90% of students continuously graduate and get a job within cybersecurity. Now, what's significant about that statistic is that it's just not like a standard IT job or help desk. I'm, I'm, and I'm not undermining IT or um, help desk jobs. I'm not undermining those. Those are super helpful. But they are Hence graduating. Hence the word, help desk. So there you go. Right. <laughs> They're graduating and getting a job in cybersecurity. And we have the same companies that are routinely coming back to hire our students as well. Two, we have an organization, um, Kivu Consulting, that opened a branch here in Burlington because we are, once again, pumping out <laughs> um, uh, technically um, savvy students. And some companies are telling us they don't have to train, retrain them so they, they're saving money as well. So what we're doing is our program has this concept of the upside down curriculum where beginning the first semester of their first year, students are in um, tech classes. So we start out with basic, you know, intro to computers and things like that, programming. And then first semester they're in uh, a cybersecurity course. And we have a lot of um, clubs that students get involved in where they learn different techniques and different things. But what we're doing in the classroom is situating them in a real world context. And we're making a heavy use of technologies like um, VMware ESXi. So they have a, their own virtual environment to learn how to manage computer systems. Second year, they get into system administration. And coming up this fall, I'm gonna be on sabbatical and work on my dissertation, which has to be, which, was, which is dealing with that, sec that first semester of the second year. And they have a virtual environment where they're learning how to build and manage a small network. And each semester in the upside down curriculum, they are involved in a cybersecurity or networking class. And what we are doing is we are teaching them things, the real world's context. So not, at, you know, <laughs> have to qualify what I say, because so, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to undermine 
can of courses. Um, but we give them, we, we, we talk to students who graduated. We talk to people in the industry to find out what are the trends, what's going on, what do we need to be teaching folks. So by having that informal advisory panel of, of uh, people in the field, we're preparing them by teaching them the skills that they need to know as soon as they walk out of the door. We also encourage internships. <clears throat> and many of the organizations that routinely come back to hire our students, students are also in the process of doing internships with them. And we also have a lot of um, seniors who have a contract already signed before their senior year, which, which uh, has a sometimes negative issue of you know, perpetuating and exacerbating uh, senioritis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, right. Yep, that's true. Like, is is part of that contract they have to they have to they have to graduate, have to graduate. or yeah. yeah, like folks who you know we, we can't just pass you. You got to do your work. You know. <laughs> okay, you got all these. Okay, well you graduate. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let me so, ask, um, let me ask you this question. So, so, yeah. so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna detour here off of this because that brings up an interesting point. So my son is an information systems major in college, but what they did for the last year and a half because of COVID, or last two last two semesters because of COVID, is students had the option to make a class pass fail because they were doing it remotely or whatever. Have you guys done yeah. that option where, if you're taking a class and let's say you're getting a D, that you can change it to pass fail versus yes, okay, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Well, the hell, if I'm a senior, they just pass me or fail me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the other part of your question is, yes, I am very. F I, I like the technical work in cybersecurity, um, but my I, I really have shifted away a lot from a lot of the technical classes mm -hmm. because I'm very much into cybersecurity people uh, skill development uh, uh, or. Um, people skill development and understanding risk and understanding what it is they're protecting. And the one class, and this was before I came on board, the one class that people routinely come back and say was the most helpful is information assurance, which are, which is our least technical class in the program. Uh, when I teach that class, it is seminar based. We talk about information from various aspects. We talk about it from supply chain risk. We talk about it from the legal um, perspective, um, information in social media, bias and algorithms and generational information. And we just talk about it. That's all we do. We talk about it. And they have discussion posts. And at the end of every semester since, I guess, 2017, the final assignment <clears throat> is for students to think about one of the topics we discussed or something of their own. And they sent a letter to Senator Leahy, who's a, you know, always been a major proponent of cybersecurity legislation. They sent a letter to, to the senator proposing, you know, some change to what we're doing with privacy, cybersecurity, and things of that nature. And my favorite emails are when they forward me the responses from their from his office, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which happened two times before the semester was over. They got responses back, and they were really excited about that. But it's to show them how they can be involved in the legislative, legislative process to um, uh, affect change with cybersecurity. And if it's anything that they're learning is, is this, it's really the same stuff over and over and over again that we're dealing with. Um, so I'm, I'm really am focused on that, but we're also teaching students to learn to, to think about business. So that class is also, not only are you gonna become a cybersecurity or digital forensic specialist, but you are there to support the mission of the organization. So when you go for your job interviews, you need to know what this organization is about. And as a cybersecurity person, when you are making, and this going back to my experience, I talked about uh, earlier with risk, when I got into, when I got into risk, if you want to uh, help the organization put into perspective your need for tools and technologies for your job, you need to help them understand how it helps to um, advance their mission. You need to know what they're planning next five or 10 years so that, you know, you can purchase that, that, that allows for economies of scale. So you're not going to be paying out a lot more money down the road. If I know 10 years from now, you plan to expand in five different 
countries, for example, we can purchase things that that scales with our organization. Um, so, so you know, but learning about how to talk to people on a non-technical level as mm-hmm. well, because so- that was a specific um, comment from several of our uh, people who hire students is that they need to learn how to talk non-technical. Mm-hmm. And we took that into stride and we, and we implemented that in our program as well. So do you find the kids coming to you to college when they get from high school, are they already technically capable of what they need them to do? Or are you kind of starting from the beginning and, and, and moving them forward? We started from the beginning. We used to have a test out feature, but I really pushed and we dissolved the test out because what we found is we have a very, people are very, kids are very technically savvy, but they're not necessarily know how they don't necessarily have uh, the focus of, with, with those skills. Sure. They can't focus it. And so that's why we started from the beginning and learned how to focus those skills um, and not be all over the place kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So I know when, so you're, so you've done a couple of Ted talks and I know that um, before I read, Oh, just one. Okay. Well, but we're going to talk about what that topic of that was. Cause I think before I retired from the FBI, I was thinking about what I wanted to do after I retired. And, and I was, I was leaning at one point towards working with a, we're actually going back into education with a school here. That's it's a cyber cyber school. It didn't really work out for, for, for a number of different reasons, but um, yeah, I recall that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we had talked, you and I had talked about using, using high school students as mm-hmm. like it folks. And I think mm-hmm. your Ted talk kind of focused around that. Correct. You want to talk a little bit yes. about what that was? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm a mentor for the cyber Patriots program which is a program sponsored by the Air Force Association. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and Cyber Patriots teaches kids, uh, middle and high school students, how to secure computer systems. And in the process, they have competitions throughout the year as well. And, you know, teams compete for points, and they can go on to regionals and then the national qualification where they're up against the, the best <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the world. Uh, essentially, it's a, a competition where they have a, a mock organization and they have to keep the bad guys out. <laughs> <laughs> right, the blue teamers. The blue teamers, yes. Um, and the folks that are attacking them are the red teamers. Yep. <laughs> and <clears throat> I started this in 2013 as part of our outreach for our uh, accreditation as a uh, NSA School of Academic Excellence in Cybersecurity. And something that I just, I just, started to thinking about is the severe labor shortage that we have and how can we help organizations with the quote unquote low hanging fruit. And the TED talk was about using middle and high school students as the next generation of cyber warriors, Mm -hmm. essentially community-based cyber patriots. And they would act as certs, and auditors, so organizations could hire them to uh, take care of their cybersecurity needs. And in the process, they're also learning business skills, learning communication skills. They're learning how to, uh, they're learning technical skills. And they're learning how to take the knowledge that they're learning and apply it to the real world. And we could, I guess, education could be a whole other topic, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but maybe another podcast down the road. I think we'll just have an education one. Really, yeah. But it, it, it's 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 about, and and my my the big idea really is making this a full curriculum, and that's based off of big, the big picture program or the one stone one um, stone school, and those are programs that are community based, where the well, let me first of all start with the one, one Stone School real quick. <clears throat> Not only are students engaged in community-based learning, they also have shared governance in the operations of the school and hiring teachers and things of that nature. So they're involved in the day-to-day process of running the school as well, not just learning. And they are taught systems and design thinking and community-based partners work with them and international consortium of advisors on tackling projects that this organization want to want to work on. And so they get involved in healthcare. They get involved in local social work programs. One of the coolest programs I, I, I read about with One Stone School is 
they, a group of students found that during graduation, the uh, number of, of high schoolers that died from drunk driving skyrocketed. And so they created a, a project to have these trust bands and they went to high schools and said, hey, if you drink, um, write, write the name of someone down in here, you can call who will come pick you up and so you don't have to drive home, for example. Which may seem like a simple thing, but these are just kids who thought about this kind of thing. You know? right. yep. um, there are kids who helped a healthcare uh, facility uh, with, with um, working with patients. We're talking about kids here. The Big Picture Program, which and we have one here in, um, in South Burlington High School, is situated in a regular high school, but these students can start at their first year, uh, ninth grade, through senior year, of developing really their own curriculum. Now, they follow, they have to, they have to meet specific requirements for graduation, but the students are really the drivers behind it and they engage in community-based projects and work with community-based partners. And the teachers in this program are their mentors, essentially, in helping them learn systems and design thinking and how to create a project, how to tackle that project, how to get people involved with it. And they have portfolios where they keep up to date with what they're working on. And these portfolios are accessible, so like the parents, for example, can see what they're doing. So we have you know, 16-year-olds who can be lifeguards, for example. So your kid in um, the second year of high school can be a lifeguard. They can also be um, uh, first responders in an emergency crisis. Uh, many of our teenagers are also uh, camp counselors. And my reason for saying all this is because we have kids who are in positions of extreme trust with people's lives, a lifeguard. <laughs> But yet we balk at the idea of them being involved in protecting the computer system. <laughs> right. But, you know, we understand the training and responsibilities of a lifeguard. We understand the training and responsibilities and background checks for people who work at summer camps. And the same thing for those who are medical respondents. We know what the training involved with that and the certifications. But people barely understand cybersecurity. So when we go to a school and talk about the cyber patriots and teaching kids about security, the first thing they think is, oh, you teach them how to hack. Right. You know, like, no, yeah. we're teaching them how to defend systems. We're teaching them ethics. We're teaching them how to manage a computer system. We're, we're structuring the, their learning so they can learn how to, once again, focus those skills <laughs> that they're, and that, and that technology desire, that, that I'm sorry, the learn, that desire to learn technology, which is focusing it more and teaching them ethical ethics as well. <clears throat> and it's, yeah, I don't think it's until we really understand and can really help people identify the training and responsibility of a, of a cybersecurity professional that we can have people feeling comfortable with this kind of program in place. Well, but I think with if you think if you look at the the the, the nature of the the cyber threat and how it evolves, how have we have you and I have seen it change from you know the mafia boy days of two thousand to now the SolarWinds hack, the the just the sheer volume of ransomware attacks, especially now against healthcare systems, where yes. you know yes. the the more. How can I say the more uh, the more trustworthy ransomware groups would try to stay away from healthcare facilities? Now right, they don't give right. a crap because they right. can get the money from them. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I would think that most communities, especially small communities, and the reason I say this because I grew up I grew up um, about two hours west of Burlington in upstate New York, and it has a very small healthcare system. There's this very small hospital there and they got hit with with ransomware i mean to the point mm -hmm. that they couldn't open doors because the doors were on mm -hmm. computer locks and stuff like that right. so your right. cyber patriot program would be a perfect opportunity for small communities like this to yes. just have an abundance of workforce to help protect their yes. it systems yes and, and and they're getting and well first of all they're getting paid for it right. but mm -hmm. also being trained by uh community partners people like you and i who've been doing this for many years who can help with that training process and and, and, and the ransomware is a really good example because our local big hospital here, um, University yes, of Yes, you got hit with the same one. Yep. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, and when you, when, I, when, I, when you hear about that attack and I try to call to pay my medical bill, <laughs> I can't even get anybody on the phone. Yep. 
and we look at the the uh, the uh, complexities of of computer networks right now, and if we can have people who can help go in and identify those, because first of all, once again, hard to point fingers because it can only take one person clicking that email. Correct. Yes. yes ransomware requires a human interaction. Right, <laughs> because the complexity of organization, everything is interconnected inside, yep. and when you you know, I tell most, most, you know, a lot of students, when you go into an organization, get a job, more than likely it's going to be already established. It's, it's like the Holy grail. If you can go in from the ground up and build in security. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when it's, when it's overly complicated, the existing staff really don't have a whole lot of time to try to test and see what the interconnections are. But if you have some extra people who can help with that and in the process, they're learning about cybersecurity, then you can, you can do this before the bad guys do. That's what risk assessments are for. Yep. You know, so that's what we're, that's what we're training. The, uh, that's what this idea is, is to train uh, middle high school students, how to conduct these risk assessments, how to perform audits and how to help organizations uncover these things before something bad happens. Because once again, it just takes one email. Right. And what's the success of the Cyber Patriots been? How is it? How is it? Has it worked out? Is it still in process of being built out, or what? What's oh yes, yes. Yeah, Cyber Patriots is um, extends into other countries because of U.S. bases that are in other countries. Mm-hmm. And it's a. I, I don't recall what the enrollment is right now, but it's it's a very strong program. Uh, the biggest need I think right now are coaches and mentors, because many schools probably want to do this and want to do it, but they immediately say, oh, we don't have anybody who can train them. Mm. But that's what, a men- that's what mentors are for. I've mentored teams in New York, New Jersey, and uh, uh, Oklahoma, for example. But, you know, I'm just one person I can't mentor. <laughs> right, right, sure, yeah. Well, you so, know, well, we'll talk offline about that because yeah. I'd be interested in helping with that, but we can talk about that afterwards. So that's that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. So I want to talk mm-hmm. about two last things. So Erlo, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about your company, Erlo, and what, you, what you're developing with that. Well, Erlo is 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 legally on pause right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. It's, it's okay. <laughs> you know, I have no money to pay anything. You know? <laughs> yeah. But um, essentially, um, Erlo was Erlo, uh, short for Ernest Lorenzo, my two kids. Because I'm not good at naming stuff, so that sure. that's sure that's a good name. That's very smart. <laughs> now I will say this. Let me. I'm going to tell you a funny story. I went to so yeah. I saw that the, you had this LLC, and I went to look it up, and the first thing that comes up is a Russian-based organization. <laughs> so it's not me. <laughs> um, and what and what we are doing is creating augmented reality experiences. And augmented reality, for those who don't know, it's like Pokemon Go is probably the most famous example. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at TV and you see the local news and you see the person's name in front of that person, that's kind of a form of augmented reality, except on a computer system, where you have a digital object that's overlaying in the real world. So you can see the real world around you and then this 3D object in front of you or 2D object. And um, initially the product we created was called Mixer PC. And that was because it started with a, a class in my doctoral program. We had to create an education venture. And I thought about how many people don't know and have never seen the inside of a computer before. And Mixer PC was an, is an augmented reality program that's designed to help people to visualize and see the inside of a computer and the various parts and how they all work together. And I was about to present that. I, I did go to a conference out in um, Silicon Valley back in the um, beginning of last year. and Pre-COVID, I assume. What's that? Pre-COVID, I assume. Yes. Um, yes. Well, it was... Um, it was just starting to, we heard about it, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. but, um, and then when I came back, I was scheduled to present at a big Northeast um, conference, technology conference for educators. And this project, the, the product, excuse me, makes a PC was targeted towards education. So I was really excited about this because <clears throat> we got technology folks, technology teachers coming to Champlain college every year. And then they canceled it because of COVID. Mm. <laughs> and attention was not on new technology. It was on remote learning. Sure. So, you know, I just had to take a step back from that because just didn't have the funding to keep going without an infusion of cash to keep it going. And it, it, was, it was just put on hold, essentially. Gotcha. So is it coming out in 2021? 
um, I am currently working on uh, bringing it back as a, a much smaller scale and letting so folks can still experience the experience computer parts. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and experience the inside of a computer. Cool. So it's now evolving into general augmented reality. And right now, um, in, on the 21st of January, I'm going to be presenting um, uh, a webinar on how to use augmented reality for safety training. Because with augmented reality, you can you can project into the real world any anything you want to. <laughs> but one thing that's difficult to do in the real world is present hazardous or dangerous environments. For example, if you work in, uh, you're tr- learning how to clean up a chemical spill, you can't just create a chemical spill to teach somebody how to do that. <laughs> right. But with augmented reality, you can do that and no one gets hurt. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, so. So, so, so we'll look for that in, in 2021. And the last thing I want to talk about is you're also a published author, right? You have a trilogy so, of so books. Pub- self-published author, yes. Self-published <laughs> is still published. So uh, are the books still available? <laughs> If you want someone wants to look for them, are they? You no, know, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, anyway, it's, it's, let's talk it's, about the title. What's the title of the books? Twisted Greed and Point of Interception. And those are about a hacker named Dewey <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, who's a, he's a, a, he's in a hacking group and they are, you know, choosing a new target. And human trafficking um, is a topic that one of the um, hacking group members heard about. And because they are hacktivists, <laughs> they wanted to target, you know, some um, trafficking organization or some um, organization that's um, known to, uh, you know, traffic people. But Dewey stumbles upon a trafficking operation um, that's being carried out through a uh, a church, which is actually based on a true story, you have to say that. Mm. <laughs> uh, but the character and the and the organizations are 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 changed and fictionalized. But it's based on a real story of a uh, guy who went to shoot. I forgot their country. Um, uh, it's a country in South America, and uh, he set up a a boys a boys home and was trafficking them essentially. And the story is about Dewey and he gets busted for hacking. <laughs> and then this FBI agent named Darren. No, no, Daryl. It was Daryl Moss. Come on, Darryl. I remember the name. Daryl, sorry. <laughs> I just totally busted, messed that up, Daryl. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of, you know, brings him, you know, essentially drops charges if he works for Yeah, Yeah, right, FBI. right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gives him an offer he can't them. refuse. <laughs> he he wasn't he wasn't working for them. He was a uh, assistant. Confidential human source. Yes. <laughs> Confidential human source. Thank you. I know you know the technical term. Yeah. <laughs> and um, helped to uh, uncover uh, and, and track down the uh, the adversaries that were the the perpetrators of that. Right. That and if I remember in the in the sequel. You, you were Dewey was kind of off being he wasn't in the CHS anymore because he'd kind of done his time and then he kind of found right. something new that he had a problem with and and right. uh, brought Daryl back in to say hey maybe you're interested in this but point of interception was the second one and I only created that because I wanted to relive my trip to Tuscany <laughs> gotcha. so um, metalsmithing metalsmithing is my hobby I haven't done it in many years but it's, it's a hobby at the time and I went to Tuscany with my silversmith teacher to learn chasing and repose. And I just fell in love with Tuscany and the landscape, the food, the people, it was just beautiful and amazing there. And at the time I was reading about these ghost ships that were appearing off the coast of um, Africa and particularly Ghana, real stories where there would be a report of a ship of a bunch of kids and they have the full description, name of the ship, person who's the captain. And when the, Coast Guard or UN goes to uh, intercept the ship. There's no kids on board, and it's like, wait, what? What happened? Well, we probably know what happened to the kids. They were just probably thrown overboard, so they wouldn't get caught. <clears throat> I mean, that's what we think happened, or they got wrong information. But 
and and so the, and so the uh, point of interception is about um, an officer in the UN named Dawn. Dawn, I've got her name. Anyway, <laughs> and she um, needs help trying to capture the trying to you know figure out what's going on. And this other agent happens to know Daryl. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> and Daryl's like, oh, you know, I know somebody who can probably help with this. <laughs> and so Dewey was on vacation in Tuscany and and got involved in in this uh this operation. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. So, so I, Interpol is an organization that was involved with this. That's right. Interpol. Yeah. So I just <laughs> looked it up. Both both books are available on Amazon. Uh, 12 bucks for the paperback, or if you have a Kindle, they're free on Kindle Unlimited. So I can get, you can read it for free for Kindle, un, Kindle Unlimited. So go look I up The and, Adventures of Dewey and Daryl Moss. I went back and read those. I'm like, oh my gosh, my grammar and spelling was horrible. <laughs> hey, hey, it's still a published, still a published author. But, I need new editions of those. <laughs> well, Dwayne, well, it's time for a third book. But uh, I guess your third book will be your dissertation for your your EV, Yes, exactly. So, you know. <laughs> No other writing for it another year. Yeah, well, well, Dewey. I mean, Dwayne. I appreciate uh, you coming on. I, we'll have. We're going to do it. We'll do, if if you if you're willing, we'll do a podcast in the future about just about education, the education piece, okay. um, and for high school and college students. I'd like to delve into that a little more, um, yeah. and uh, I think that would be interesting. So, if you're willing to do that, we'll do that. And uh, I wish you and your family a happy new year and uh, good luck in the next semester of school. Thanks. The same to yours as well. Thanks. I appreciate it. So that'll do it for episode 20 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I greatly appreciate everyone who's listening and who's told their friends to, to give the podcast a listen. It's available on all of your favorite podcast locations, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all those. I've made it, tried, hopefully made it easy to find. If you have any questions or comments on the show or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to email me at Darren at the cyberguy.com. Darren is D-A-R-R-E-N. Cyber is spelled C-Y-B-U-R. As you go through your week, make sure you understand the threats that are targeting you, assess your risk overall, and proceed wisely online. Thank you. Have a good week.